0: Welcome to Bookish Ship Ethel. I am Anne-Marie Koyster from the History Department, and I'm joined by
1: Carrie Peffley from the Philosophy Department.
0: This week we're going to be talking to Eric Leafblad from the Biblical and Theological Studies Department, and we will be talking about the readings we're doing coming up in Humanities on Tocqueville and Frederick Douglass. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, is this the first time that you've read Tocqueville?
2: Uh, no, I mean, I've read Tocqueville in the past, uh, probably ooh, 10, 15 years ago, but okay, um, it's the first time I've taught Tocqueville, so okay. in that sense, like, it's probably the first time I've read him really closely. But- okay. Okay.
0: Carrie and I had a conversation at our, on our last podcast with some pieces of Tocqueville. And so students are continuing to read from democracy in America, but now they're switching to a conversation pretty specifically about native Americans and African-Americans. Do yeah. you want to say a little something about what students are reading this week in
2: Tocqueville? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. So they're uh, engaging kind of his well I, th- I think it's titled something like the three on the three races i have it right here on the three races that inhabit the united states so it's really kind of his reflection on um the the interrelationship between sort of white european colonizers and um and uh, yeah african americans n- native populations Um, And the thing that I appreciate about Tocqueville um, in rereading him and and diving into him a little bit more is that he I mean, he's a product of his time. No question. Just in the way that he refers, you know, uh, some of the categories he uses to describe these other uh, groups of people. Um, But what I do appreciate about him is he doesn't necessarily take for granted that uh, the way things are on the surface is actually the way things are, right? He's willing to press into what he calls mores. Um, and really that's, that's kind of where his analysis, uh, moves from is his observation, not, not simply of like what the United States says about itself, but instead, um, what he observes as like the actual real dynamics between different groups and things like that. So, Um, I found I I found it really intriguing, um, his ability to kind of pick up on the implicit sorts of dynamics that exists and his ability to move to a different kind of analysis than just maybe like, well, here's what the Constitution says or here's how they talk about themselves. But like, here's what actually the social relationships look like.
0: (sighs) Well, and we ask students to read these sections about um, Tocqueville's observations in 1830 on Native Americans and African Americans, and then think about how those observations connect to Frederick Douglass's observations about slavery Mm -hmm. in his autobiography. And then Zikhalasaw, a Native American woman who writes about her experience several decades later about Native Americans and the assimilation process and so on and so forth, so I wonder, since we're starting first with Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. are there a couple of observations that Tocqueville makes about African Americans, about slavery, you name it, that stood out to you as things that you definitely want your students to think about as they're moving into Frederick Douglass's own account of what he experiences?
2: Yeah, um, I think I think the the primary thing from Tocqueville that. Uh, that that maybe is helpful for context related to, to reading Douglas's autobiography. Um, well, let me start, let me reverse engineer it. You're going to read Douglas if you haven't already, and you're going to be probably at various moments, sort of overwhelmed by some of what he says, particularly in terms of his time, uh, as a slave and, um, just the accounts of like, you know, sort of like that. Maybe what you would describe as his loss of innocence happens like right away. Um, and, and maybe he's not even given the gift of innocence would be even a better way of putting it. Um, and I think what I think, I think you can read those details and sort of get caught up in just the, the sort of visceral reaction to them. And, and you should, I think, but but I also think where, where um, uh, Tocqueville is really helpful is um, f- for Douglas. The focus is entirely on slavery, and I think sometimes we can get lost in the institution of slavery and think like that's the problem. And Tocqueville points out right away in his early, uh, like right away at the start when he starts discussing kind of the relationship of race uh, in America that it's at, that the problem isn't slavery. The I mean, slavery's problem, don't, don't get me wrong, but the problem isn't first slavery. It's sort of what, like, Jim Wallace, who's a contemporary thinker, calls America's original sin, which is race and, and racism. That slavery is just the, the, the vehicle mm-hmm. of a deeper, more insidious American problem. Um, and, and so I think, I think, I think what, Tocqueville does with that to to articulate that even freedom, like even like don't look at the North as heroic or something like that, because even their sort of like freedom is to get rid of uh, black folks, to send them somewhere else. um, So they don't have to confront maybe that. And Tocqueville doesn't necessarily go this deep with it, but but, so that they don't have to confront the fact that they're not, they're not really that different from the Southerner um, just because they don't have slavery. And I think sometimes therefore um, like we might read Douglas as a distant sort of thing. Uh, and I, I wonder if recognizing that sort of piece of what Tocqueville's writing can help us see the, the contemporary relevance of Douglas now, particularly like even in this period of, uh, quarantine and COVID America, like <laughs> watch the news, like African American populations are being hit. By the virus, exponentially more than white populations, and so like this stuff that Tocqueville identifies and that we see with great gravity in Douglas has not gone away in our country. It's still here, and so I wonder. Um, maybe I'm preaching a little bit too much, but um, like I, I wonder if we can see these as works of history, but also recognize that like the shadow of what they're talking about. Still is still cast immensely uh, in very material ways in our country.
1: Well, and I think you brought up earlier um, this, this concept of morays. i talked with my students about that yesterday because I think coming out of Tocqueville, that is the concept that I want them to, when we get to humanities or in the fall, I already told them yesterday, I will come back to this and make sure you remember this, mm-hmm. this concept of morays, right? That these institutions that we have that can be bad, um, or can be good, are built on top of these underlying customs, habits, moral intuitions that we have, um, yeah. and institutions reveal what's really there, um, yeah. and so I think that's, that's key, a key takeaway.
2: Yeah, so a philosopher that I, that I work with quite a bit in my own work is a guy named Charles Taylor, and he describes these as what he calls social imaginaries, which I think is a really helpful concept. And I think it's what Taylor's describing with uh, with these sorts of things, and it's it's just the idea that like there's certain possibilities that uh, the uh, social imaginary is like this this kind of felt intuitive thing that provides a kind of limit of limit and horizon for possibilities of what we can imagine in the world, um, and uh, I, I think you know, he draws on Tokubo quite a bit in his, his work. And um, I mean, I think that is maybe the, the the most important thing about Tokyo is like, it's not just like all men are created equal. He's sort of pushing that deeper and saying like, well, what is it like, who is a man? Uh, Who can you even imagine to be a man? Like you can't even imagine certain people to be a man. Um, Obviously he doesn't put it that directly, but I mean, that's kind of the, the, Mm -hmm. essence of what he's after, I think.
0: Well, and I'll just uh, chime in here and say uh, the news was mentioning that this is the anniversary of Martin Luther King's funeral. And uh, one of the things that I always talk about with my students in American history courses is that the civil rights movement was well and fine for Northerners when it was in the South challenging law. Right. But it got real problematic when in fact, civil rights leaders began to challenge exactly what you were talking about, Carrie, these mores, Mm -hmm. these habits of the heart, these things that people did, even though there was no law necessarily saying, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. And one of the things, Eric, that I'll go back to that you mentioned that I think is really brilliant about Tocqueville, is he points out that African-Americans living in the North were technically free in terms of the law but right. they had no access to homes education right. or political enfranchisement as white people and so the th- one of the things that was startling for me as somebody who grew up in the upper midwest mm-hmm. was to learn that the arguments made against the desegregation of schools were based on um, the Boston practice of segregation from the 1840s, hmm. that segregation of schools wasn't something that started in the South. It was something that the South was like, see, the North is doing it. Why can't we after right. they abolished slavery? So that w- I mean, so Tocqueville definitely challenges me to rethink my sense of privilege right. about the North's role. Being on the so-called right side of history with regard to slavery and the Civil War, right? And he points yeah, he out the that, heart of darkness is is everywhere.
2: Yeah, well, and I think what I, I mean, he has a he has a line up. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember it specifically, but essentially he says like the the abolition of slavery is not for the for the right. black person; it's for the white person. Right. Which I think is a really trenchant analysis of, uh, and you could even say like let's let's problematize that a little bit more. Let's demythologize Lincoln like Lincoln is Af- like he certainly wants uh emancipation but the question we can ask through Tocqueville is does he want emancipation for african african americans or does he want emancipation because it'll keep the union together and in keeping the union together who's that really about uh, now again that doesn't mean like it's more complicated than a singular answer of course but it it it's at least, Tocqueville at least invites us to ask the question of demythologizing some of the way that we tell those stories, I think.
0: Right. And so one of the first sort of political movements that we see uh, in the 1840s is the Free Soil Movement, which on the face of it sounds good, right? They're anti-slavery. Well, Mm -hmm. they're anti-slavery in that as we expand westward, they want to make sure that the western states that are formed are free but ne- but but actually exclude African Americans it's free soil mm-hmm. for white people and Tocqueville actually mentions that that a number of whites or, or western states are whites only states yeah shocking
2: mm-hmm. right right uh, yeah, I think the, go ahead the other thing that that I I, I found really interesting um, in in Tocqueville again was um, in a certain sense, the if you think of sort of the American experiment, if you will, as about um, he t- uh, talked what did he, what did he how do he describe it as about sort of oh equality and freedom, and and he he part of his analysis of both um, African Americans and and Native Americans is on that basis, right? So the African American shows up as sort of the the uh, obverse of equality they're not equal right so there's uh there's that sort of national lie he might say and then the the relationship between the native americans is um they're almost um they were free in the freest sense is mm-hmm. how you would argue like they they were part of nature is the way that he puts it right and again there's some there's some built-in sort of enlightenment ideas that aren't great about that. But his point was that, like, this, this sort of ideal of freedom they had until the European settler came. And so, the, the, like, I just think that he doesn't – I mean, he develops that, but he doesn't develop it as much as he could, I think. And maybe he was bound by his time in, in not being able to do that. But I think that's a really interesting um, piece of his analysis, too, is that those two things, which are, like, the American ideals – also have their great contradiction uh, in terms of how they um, show up in the relationship between these groups that he's looking at.
0: Well, and the other thing that I appreciate too about Tocqueville moving from the mores to the laws is he does notice that with regard to laws uh, dealing with slavery that they have, in fact, changed the habits of the mind and the heart for those who have been enslaved as well as those who are slave owners. Mm -hmm. And that is Mm -hmm. a fascinating observation. And I think what I appreciate about the fact that we read Tocqueville with Douglas is that Douglas both kind of affirms, Mm -hmm. but then also challenges certain Mm -hmm. ideas that Tocqueville makes in terms of so what has been the effect of enslavement on those who are enslaved? And so I've got a, just a couple of passages, and I just want to mention them, just because I think when I read this, I immediately think of Frederick Douglass. So Tocqueville writes, and again, pardon the language, this is 1830, plunged into the abyss of evils. The Negro hardly feels his misfortune. Violence had placed him in slavery, mm. The habit of servitude. Has given him the thoughts and ambition of a slave. Mm-hmm. And I think Douglas will both write, Yes, that's true. And yet I am very much fighting against that. And Eric, you made this comment earlier where you said, You know, part of what's going on is um, Tocqueville's challenging us to think who is actually a man. And Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass will actually say, I am a man.
2: Right. And he also like he has that beautiful uh section when he's talking about the songs of the yeah. slaves and how like people see they're fine, like they're they're happy and content. And he sort of is like you think these are songs of contentment? These are uh songs of, of sorrow and song these are songs born of of deep suffering and despair, which is actually like uh I think one of the y'all know my penchant for music, like it's one of the most important sort of american contributions to the musical world is is through the african-american sort of songs of protest and songs of you know pretty much every great uh, african-american form is in a uh, form of music is in some sense a, a resistance song or a song of of suffering and sorrow that says no to what sort of the dominant society would say about them um, which i think is you know, goes all the way back to Douglas saying like, y'all don't get it if that's what you think is going on. Um, Which again, challenges total understanding that like they just sort of accept it. Right. There's kind of a built in um, culture of resistance among the enslaved. um, And, and I think Douglas, uh, yeah. Douglas is really astute in the way he talks about it in a certain sense saying like, well, of course there's a certain sense in which we're embedded in this, these mores, And yet we're more than them too. And I think that's really, really important to pick up in his story that uh, Tocqueville still does, even though he's, I think perceptive, he still sits from a position of of relative privilege to be able to look at this and and can have some kind of critical distance. Whereas I think coupled with Douglas, we can see that his perceptive analysis also needs kind of the embodiment of uh, lived experience to fully understand what he's talking about. Mm
1: Yeah. So they do really end up emphasizing again from, from different perspectives. And in some ways, Douglas is a bit of a critique of some of the simplicities of Tocqueville, mm-hmm. but this idea that, that these institutions, that as I said earlier, Marais influence the institutions. But as you guys are talking about, the institutions then influence those Marais as well. And so I think Douglas talks a lot about. Um, the effect, the dehumanizing effect of slavery, not just on the slave, but on the slave owner. And Tocqueville can't quite get that far, but he's observing some of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But you need that embodied experience to really point out, this, is de- this institution has dehumanized all of us and screwed us all up. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. So again, I'm just going to read one more quote from Tocqueville, because again, I think this is another place where as soon as I read this quote from Tocqueville... I think, Douglas, because Tocqueville notes that um, because Americans of the South don't feel that African-Americans should intermingle with them, they have forbidden, under severe penalties, teaching them to read and to write, not wanting to elevate them to their level. They hold them down as close as possible to the brute. And yet, Douglas, again, comes back and says, actually, there are some of us who have actually been really working on finding ways around this, Mm -hmm. and yet he does kind of agree with this larger principle that literacy is tied to emancipatory thinking, which, I mean, of course, as a professor, right, Right. I love to sort of, you know,
1: pause on on that point. This is why we like books.
2: Right. Indeed.
0: Yeah. (sighs) So much in this book. Yeah, well,
2: I, go ahead, Carrie.
1: Oh, I was just going to ask. You know, you've you've already made connections for us to Charles Taylor, um, mm-hmm. Tocqueville. Do you have any other um, suggestions, connections, as you're reading Tocqueville and Douglas?
2: Yeah. Um, so, in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so, one in, in my in my discipline in, in theology, um, there really is no. Uh, like there's american theologians right um, but there is no like like you can point to other parts of the world and say like these are like particular sort of, like there's like german theology there's there's anglican or, or anglophone theology but uh, until 1960s or 1960s or 70s while, again while there are sort of um, there, there's important american theologians there isn't like a distinctive American voice until a guy named James Cone, uh, mm-hmm. who's the father of black liberation theology. And one of the the sort of incendiary claims I sometimes make in classes when I teach Cone is that like, there really is no such thing as a native American, like native in terms of like indigenous American um, theology until black liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to know what American theology is, uh, where it isn't sort of, um, derivative of another context but is actually native to the the place in which it originates you don't get that until black liberation theology Um, and i think that uh basically like cohn's whole point was that um he had to essentially stop talking in the voice of european theologians and start speaking as a black american and that's when he could really do theology and he does some really really interesting stuff but i think that that I think, uh, I, I think that the cone sort of in my discipline sits in the trajectory of a Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I would, I would almost say like, um, like, like Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, those sorts of, uh, uh, Great James Baldwin later on, like those sort of great African American intellectuals and artists and thinkers, um, give rise to, I think, the first kind of native, and I, I mean that in sort of like indigenous to this place, first Native American um, theology, which uh, would be Black liberation theology. So, well,
0: and as the uh, historian on the team, I will mention that there is a collection online during these times of COVID-19 called Documenting the American South. Mm -hmm. And it has all sorts of primary sources. And so there are all kinds of other slave narratives. Uh, And again, what's nice about that is it's not only the greats like Frederick Douglass, but you've also got a lot of women, including the great Harriet Jacobs. Um, Mm -hmm. And the stories of women are significantly different in some ways than the stories of men um so frederick Douglass actually speaks in a couple of uh sections directly about manhood and what that looks like and that's fascinating from a gendered perspective harry jacobs will talk about some situations facing her uniquely as a woman but the documenting the american south collection also has post civil war um, narratives and so it's a great collection to explore sort of the ordinary voices um that are dealing with inequality, slavery and so on and so forth. So, you know, worth your time potentially. Cool. Yeah. So Eric, um, as we are in the times of COVID-19, people are sometimes streaming things. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you're going to be listening to a lot of music. I know you want to talk about music. Is there anything though, first that you're streaming that you want to tell us about?
2: I mean, third season of Ozark was really good. (laughs) So (laughs) I, uh, watched that in about 3 days. Um and then uh, I don't my my kids and I we watched uh New Girl. Got oh. through all of that. Um Uh what else?
0: That makes I, you I, a human, Eric, and I appreciate that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's good good. Uh yeah, I mean Yeah, and then I'm listening to a lot of music obviously. But. All
0: right, well, we know you want to talk about music. but what are you listening to?
2: I do. To? So the the I I often give a lot of recommendations when I come on the podcast, and I'm sure nobody actually uh, listens to them. However, I will say this. uh, So two days ago, John Prine uh, died from COVID. Um, John Prine is, I think, uh, I describe him as like, uh, and this is a compliment to Springsteen, not John Prine. I describe him as the Springsteen of um, the upper Midwest. So he's an upper Midwestern singer songwriter, former postal worker. And he's just an incredible. And so because of that, like he's got tons of stories, right? So he's just an incredibly good storyteller and songwriter. I think the best in the, in the country. Um, so losing him was, was a big deal. And so I've been listening to him nonstop for the past two days. Um, so students, if you're listening to this, John Prine, pull him up on Spotify and you will, uh, you will be blessed by his troubadour ways.
0: Well, we've got to ask Carrie Peffley, what are you streaming these days? Are you still watching Jane Fonda? No, this is embarrassing.
1: Uh, but I have gotten into the Tiger King because so many people have been talking about it. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Um, Very entertaining. People describe it like it's watching a train wreck and you can't look away. And that's very much uh, the way way I felt.
0: Wow. Um, Well, I will just say that I continue to be enjoying my acorn subscription. This is a really weird streaming service. Um, But I am now watching a Dutch drama called the Schuendam 12 and it's lovely. My, my um, origins are Dutch way back when, and so it's kind of fascinating to see people that I'm like, oh, those people could be my relatives
2: right what there. Is the, what is Suodom? Is that like a place?
0: It's a place
2: as far oh, as okay. I can tell. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, but it, it's, it's great. It's, it's fascinating, and I, it makes me feel like I'm not quite as frivolous because I'm watching something in a foreign language. Yes. Right. It's very American of me to say that, by the yeah. way. I know that. With Don't software. judge me. Um, and so, what's are you reading? Anything, Eric? Do you have anything on the bedside table? Uh,
2: I have. I'm I'm writing quite a bit, so I have a lot of books uh, right now. I'm not really reading anything for pleasure or fun. No, of course I'm, not. I'm trying to get some a significant project done in this time period. So, uh, but yeah, I've got probably a hundred <laughs> books stacked on my table right right here. So.
0: But nothing on the night, The nightstand. You've just no. got music. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. Carrie, are you still working your way through Ulysses?
1: No, I actually paused that this week because I was teaching um, Al Ghazali's mysticism this week, and so I decided to actually just reread *Deliverance from Error*. So that has been on my bedside um, table, and I just love it. He describes he's working through all of the different ways that people approach truth he sort of groups them into categories. He's searching for certainties in the middle of a lecture. And he says, God puts a lock on his tongue and he can no longer speak. And he realized it leads to a crisis of faith. And he goes wandering in the desert for a while and explores all these different ways to truth. And this eventually leads him to, to Sufism. Um, and it's just a, a beautiful religious memoir. So I sort of paused Ulysses for a religious okay. memoir.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What about you? Well, and I'm
0: still... Yeah, I'm still reading through the short stories in Dubliners, um, enjoying those. I'm also with my daughter reading a children's version of Don Quixote, which she loves. So how fun is that? She's like, can we read Moby Dick next? And I was like, sure. Was the,
2: the first great American novel.
0: That's right. There you go. Well, um, thanks, Eric, for being on our show today. And you've been listening to Focus at Bethel.